0: Are you ready to study the scripture? Get your Bible out, a piece of paper, and uh, a pen. I want you to take notes. I think every time we, every time we spend time listening to a message, we retain a certain amount. When we write something down when we're listening, we retain even more. Um, and so, I really want you to. Uh, really want you to get something out of it. It's amazing to me how many people come up to me after a service and say, Wow, it was awesome when you said this and this and this. And I, I think back, I didn't say any of that. Because what's happening is the Holy Spirit's speaking to them. And they didn't even realize that I didn't say it. And that's when the right thing is happening, right? Which is awesome. So as you know, we've been in a series we just started last week called 2020 Vision. And uh, 2020 Vision is really about our church and where we're going. Uh, last week, we talked about our just our personal vision, what God is doing within us and with our lives uh, as individuals. And, and over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about our corporate body of believers. Where's One Chapel going? Where are we headed? And uh, one of the things that is so clear to me, you know, as I'm getting... As I'm getting older, I've always been nearsighted. Right? Nearsighted means I can see near, but I can't see far, so I gotta wear contacts and glasses. I've been doing that uh, for a lot of years. But recently, I st- I started losing my nearsightedness, and so I'm nearsighted and farsighted. Or no, I'm nunsighted. I don't. Ha- it's like I don't have any sight, so I had to buy my first pair of ones. You ever seen these? They're on the. They're on the yeah at the on the end of the aisle at Walmart right or HEB and there's a whole bunch of them and they're super crazy um, reading glasses and they have all kinds of them and so I bought my first pair here's the thing as a church we have to be both nearsighted and farsighted we have to see what's going on right here in front of us we have to we have to understand what's happening here in the local uh, group of people that we're connected to what's going on in our hearts it's very important that we take care of each other but we also have to lift our eyes to see what God is doing in our city and around the world we can't have one or the other some churches they focus more on what's going on right in front of them and then they kind of ignore what's going on out there and other churches they're super plugged into what's going on out there but they don't take care of people very well we have to be the kind of church that does both and does both well that's 2020 vision And so we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks, and I want you to join us for that. Um, So turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. That's where we're going to begin tonight. Because we're going to talk tonight about being united for a purpose. Being united for a purpose. John 17, we're going to start in verse 20. I don't know if you realize it, but this week we had an election. And it was so crazy to watch this thing unfold. I saw the campaigns, they were so mean, they seemed so cruel, there was so much going on, there was so much vitriol and just kinda meanness from the campaigns toward one another and all those nasty ads and on TV. They spent, they spent the most money ever on television ads, like over two billion dollars. I kept thinking to myself, just, just leave the guy in the office and take that $2 billion and pay down the debt. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Um, some of you are like, no. <laughs> Pastor Ross, what are you talking about? But what I, I, what I noticed is after um, President Barack Obama was reelected, he, he was calling for something. After all the, all the mean words and all the crazy campaign stuff, he was calling for something. What was he calling for? He was calling for unity. He's calling for people to come together. Everybody, can we just come together? If I, if I had a nickel for every time people said that, can we just all come together? <laughs> it's a miracle when people come together. Actually, actually, there, there are par- parts of our um, of our U.S. history that are miraculous. If you think about two hundred and thirty-six years that our nation's been in existence. And yet we have found a way to hand off power and authority every few years. There's no military coups. There's no takeover. There's no hostile uh, danger, you know, in the streets. We, we, we actually do it in an orderly and peaceful way. And that's, that's pretty miraculous. There's something really honorable about that. But here's what I saw after the election. I saw all these all these Facebook posts, right? I don't think Facebook and po- politics should go together at all. I think they were not meant for each other. They were not made for each other. They to stay as far away as possible from each other, but everybody gravitated to Facebook and Twitter, and they were just going nuts, and what was amazing to me, what was astounding and, and discouraging was to see all of even our own Christian community kind of enter into the the meanness, the cruelty, the, the gloating, the, the, the crazy uh, verbiage on both sides, uh, criticizing the other side, and just uh, kind of engaging in a very low-level dialogue. That was really sad to me. And you know why? Because we're called to something greater. As believers, we're called to something more powerful than politics. We're called to something higher. Our nation is suffering from a sickness, but no president, no political wave across the country is gonna fix it. There's only one thing that can fix it, and it is the work of Christ in people's lives. We have the responsibility of holding that as sacred. And while I appreciate today our veterans, who have fought and who have stood for freedom and liberty. I appreciate the sacrifice that they demonstrate to us. We shouldn't forget who we belong to. That while we are citizens of the United States of America, we have a higher calling, and it is to be citizens of heaven. And we have to keep that front and center, or else we'll get distracted. We'll get pulled down by all the muck and the garbage and the trash of our culture. You can get sucked in really easily. It's important for us to identify the challenge before us. And it is a challenge to be united. It is a challenge to be, being united is an incredible thing. It's always held in high regard. You think about where you find people united, whether it's a country or it's a football team or it's a marching band or a political party, it's, when people watch it, they're like impressed, wow. Look at how that football team functioned. Everybody's super excited about the Longhorns when they are in unity. They were in unity yesterday. Who'd they play, Iowa State? They pummeled them. But if they would have lost to Iowa State, if they weren't unified if they weren't coordinated they weren't they were losing the ball and missing tackles and missing blocks you know what everybody everybody ugh. lack of unity is very frustrating for people that's why you hear people saying so many times can't we just come together why can't we just come together well because being in unity is not just something you do because you want to be nice to each other Or because you can do it on your own. It it requires something. It's the very thing that Jesus was praying in this passage. If we look at John 17, we're going to look at the prayer of Jesus. And if there's one person in the scripture that we should look at his prayers and put them right up there, and prioritize them in our lives, it's Jesus. Jesus thought this was important enough to pray over as he prayed over his disciples in John 17. So I want you to join me and let's pray before we read it. Father, would you illuminate the scriptures to us? Let us see it clearly and let it have an impact on us. Let it transform us and make us into the people you're calling us to be. We receive it now in Jesus' name, amen. John 17, 20 says, I'm praying not only for these disciples but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I want you to take your pen. I want you to underline that. Underline that that phrase because you know what? That is Jesus praying for you. He's not just praying for his disciples. He's looking into the future. He's looking into the generations that are to come, and he's praying for them. If your Bible is too good to mark in, enshrine it in glass and get a new one. We should mark down, we should mark all over our Bible and let it speak to us. Something powerful about this prayer of Jesus. Verse 21 says, I pray that they will all be, what does it say? One. One. I pray that they'll all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I want you to notice that right there. He gives a reason for unity. It's not unity for no purpose. It's not unity just for the sake of feeling better about ourselves. It's not unity just for being nice. There is a purpose behind unity for Jesus as he prays. He continues the idea in verse 22. He says, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Do you know that this is the scripture that one chapel is based on? The name One Chapel. I remember reading it in my daily Bible reading in 2009. And I was in my my study, and I was reading the daily Bible reading. It happened to be John 17. And my eyes came across that passage, and I was like, oh, that's it. Because there's a message here in Jesus' prayer. And the first message is, is Jesus is praying for his disciples that they would understand who they are as God's people, as God's children, he's praying for them to have the same kind of unity and connection that he has with his father. How closely was Jesus connected to his father? Jesus, the Bible says that he only did what his father told him to do, and he only said the things his father said, told him to say. He's talking about a connection. He said, he said I, I'm in you, and you're in me, and we're in them, and they're in us. He wanted to cover all his bases in his prayer. He was praying around this idea of who we are as God's children, who we are as his family. And we, what one chapel needs to do is make sure that we know our identity, that we have the kind of unity, the kind of connectedness, the kind of understanding of who God's making us into as a group of people, as Jesus had in in obedience to his father. And when we understand who we are and then we love each other, guess what? Jesus gets revealed. That's what Jesus said. He said, I want you to make them one so that the world will believe that you sent me. Something powerful happens when we take care of one another in such a way. When we merge our hearts together in a community, the world sees it and, and they want to know what that is. There's a power in it. So one half of the One Chapel vision is really about community. One half, one half of the One Chapel vision is about establishing a community of love and grace. A community where people love each other and care for each other deeply. And the, the second half of the One Chapel mission is, or vision is about mission. It is about what, what God wants to do through that community. We're not just a community of people that sort of keep to ourselves, there's a purpose behind our union. There's a purpose behind us gathering together, and that purpose lives out there. That purpose is waiting for somebody to come across their path to share this kind of love with them. The the, the people who are lost and alone and isolated, they, they don't belong to any family. Their family is dysfunctional, and they're looking for people who will love them purely and honestly that they can belong to. That's the mission of our church, to make sure that those people find a family. Did you know that Psalm 68 says that God sets the lonely in families? That's what we're doing here. So another way to say this idea that Jesus is praying is um, we've got to love God, got to know Him, love Him, and we've got to love our neighbor as ourselves. Isn't that the great commandment? That's what Jesus said, the greatest commandment. And then John, he... He continues on that theme in 1 John 4, 19. I'll just put it up on the screen. He says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. It's really true. When I, when I talk to people about God, In our culture, in our society, everybody loves God. Nobody likes his family. Nobody likes his family because they're all broken people. They're all messed up. And it's hard to manage. It's hard to manage that kind of a family, right? God's calling us to something higher. What kind of miracle would it be? Just think about it for a second. What kind of a miracle would it be for a diverse group of people from every social strata and demographic, every political affiliation and religious background that you can imagine, each with their own history, their own experience, nationalities, their own education. We're talking about both male and female, Democrat and Republican, rich and poor, urban and suburban, Longhorn and Aggie. You know that's a miracle. What would it look like if all those people were willing to lay down their lives for each other? If they were willing to shed their identifying marks and take on the mark of Christ? That would be a miracle, number one. But second of all, it would speak loud and clear to our society about who we are. Isn't it Jesus who said in John 13, 35, that they will know you're my disciples if you have love for who? Love for the poor? Certainly we should take care of the poor. Love for those who are unlovely? Absolutely. No, but he said there's something something powerful. There's some kind of spiritual power, strength in unity, in the love that a community has for one another. That's what Jesus is identifying. In fact, it's no different than the first century church. First century church had to deal with all this stuff. Look what Paul wrote in Galatians three. I'll just put it up on the screen. Galatians 3.26 says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. He said, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He was having a problem with Jews and Gentiles. They weren't accepting one another. They they weren't coming together. He was having an issue with slaves coming to the same house of worship as slave owners. And they were having to navigate that and manage it. It's the same for us today. There's a powerful thing that happens when we're willing to surrender to the work of God in us. But it requires Holy Spirit strength and power. You can't just do it by being nice to each other. There's got to be something deeper. There's a, there's a richness to the kind of unity Jesus is praying for, and it has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. Oh, you should go over there with me. Go over there. I'm, I don't have that one on the screen. Go over there with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Unity is the work of the Holy Spirit among us. And why? Why is unity such a work of the Spirit? Because it's so hard to love each other. So hard to love one another. Look what Paul says about this. If you're there, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. The calling you have is high. He's challenging us to lead. He's challenging the Ephesian people to to lift their eyes to the calling that they received that they would be worthy. For you have been called by God. Verse 2 says, always be humble and gentle. Really? This is the way we live a life worthy of the calling? Humble and gentle. Be patient with each other making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Really? We have to make allowances for each other's faults? It has to be okay that we all have faults? I know I have faults, but do I have to put up with other people's faults? Yes. It's the the thing that begins the work of the Spirit. Look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. You know what happens when there's division instead of peace? You know what happens when there's a church that's divisive and gossiping and backbiting and bickering Guess what happens? No unity, first of all, and then no peace. And then finally, what happens is it discourages people from trusting in the glorious hope, the glorious hope of the future. We fail in our mission. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse five says, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. There's no way that you can do it unless the Holy Spirit is living through you. There's no way you can put up with each other. (laughs) There's no way you can put up with that obnoxious lady at your small group. You know, the one that speaks her mind way too much, embarrasses the leader, sometimes calls somebody out, you're like, what is wrong with that lady? Or the kind of person that is in your small group and, and they, they end up having a problem with the leader. And then they call three of their friends and tell them about the problem they're having with the leader. Oh, just to pray for them. Just pray for this guy. He's so awful. It's so bad. I think something's going wrong in his life. I, I, I sense the Holy Spirit is grieved. And could you call three people and have them pray too? Because this is, really a, this is really a big deal. There's something wrong. There's something deeply wrong. Well, what's wrong? I don't know. I just feel it. I just feel something bad. I, I, I think some of our division in our churches is more a result of bad manners than anything else or, or stupidity. It's a lot of stupidity. The scriptures want us, they, they're they teaching, there's a doctrine of unity across the scriptures that we've got to grab onto or else we'll miss the very purpose that God called us to. It's foundational in the way the body of Christ works. If you look at Psalm 133, turn over there, Psalm 133, all the way through to the Old Testament, keep going left, left, left until you get to... Job, and then you've gone too far. And then turn right to Psalms, and you'll be there at Psalm 133. All right, if you found it, say, I found it. Wow, that was fast. Here's what it says. It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's pleasant. It's wonderful. Verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard. What is oil a symbol of in the, Holy, in the Scripture? I've told you, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it's also a symbol of the anointing. David was anointed with oil when he became king. Samuel anointed him and poured it over his head. Here, the oil is being poured over the priest's head who is ministering before the Lord. He says, where there is unity, there's like this oil, this anointing, this preparation for doing the work that God's called you to do. And then he says, it's as the dew of Hermon that was falling or as as if it were falling on Mount Zion. Hermon is not a person, it's a place. And it's where he's talking about the dew of the morning, the refreshing that is on the grass, you know, early morning when you rise, when you look outside and it's a beautiful day, but there's just just a little bit of moisture and you go outside and you (sighs) hopefully you're more clear than that. (laughs) I have allergies right now that are killing me, but there's something so refreshing about just that early morning moment when everything's a little bit wet and is feeding off the moisture of the evening. He's saying that's how unity is. And then he says, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Isn't the point of the Christian faith, right, is understanding the blessing that God's given you and receiving his life? Isn't that what we're doing here? We're sharing life, the life of Christ. This is where, this this comes from being in unity with one another. Unity is where God's blessing is poured out and is the result of a common purpose. We don't have unity for unity's sake. There's a greater purpose we're called to and that greater purpose is driving us, that greater purpose is knowing Christ and making him known and that fuels our desire to live in a community of love for one another. Here's here's the bottom line. What the scriptures teach us is that our relationships are the method for our mission. What Jesus is praying is, you gotta get this relationship thing right because it's how other people are gonna know. If you can't get along with each other, how, how are you gonna convince the world to join you? How are you gonna get along with them? With God, relationship is primary. Our relationship with Him and with others. God is all about relationship. That's the point. That's the purpose. Relationship with him. And he shows himself. He reveals himself through relationship with others. So Jesus, even Jesus himself, he he challenges us. He challenges us from the Sermon on the Mount to prioritize. Everybody say prioritize. Prioritize oh, prioritize, he's prioritizing relationships even above our own personal worship. Look at what he says here in Matthew chapter five. Turn over there to Matthew five. All the way to Matthew five, Sermon on the Mount. And you can look at it, Matthew five, verse 21. Here's what he said. He says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Wow, did you catch that? He's, the next phrase says, if you, if you call, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. One version says, you fool. Uh, another version uh, talks about the word raka and, uh, and, and how you're brought before the religious court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. And Jesus is so amazing. In the the Sermon on the Mount, he's not providing a new set of rules. He's not saying, hey, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. And now I'm going to give you a new rule. Don't be angry. It's not like that. He's talking about a new way of life. He's calling us to a higher way of life, not a higher law but a higher life. He, Jesus was ushering in the, the kingdom of God, and it was going to function on a different level. It wasn't. People often say things like, oh, I'm so glad we're under grace, and we're not under the law. We don't have to live under the law. Listen, the standard for grace is higher than the standard of the Old Testament, because it deals with your motive. It deals with your heart. If you get angry at someone, and you don't resolve it, guess what? Your heart begins to disintegrate. It melts under the bitterness. It ruins it. Jesus is pointing to something deeper than just doing the right thing. Get this. He's pointing to something deeper than just doing the right thing. Does he want you to do the right thing? Yes. But what we're going to learn here in a moment is doing the right thing is not the point. In fact, sometimes you may be wronged, and you're going to have to deal with it in a way that honors others, that goes the second mile, that turns the other cheek, A different way that Jesus wants us to live Now look, here's what he says here It continues in this this passage So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple And you suddenly remember that someone has something against you okay, Get it, you're praying You're ready to offer your sacrifice in the temple Suddenly you realize that Joe the butcher is mad at you Because you owe him money Suddenly you remember that While you're praying What does Jesus say? He says, uh, you remember somebody has something against you. Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. And then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Huh. You know what this implies to us? It implies to us that Jesus had a hierarchy of biblical values, that there's a, 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 a hierarchy that he holds when he's looking at the sacrificial system, when he's looking at an act of worship. He says that act of worship is not as important as making sure you have unity with somebody. It's not even about you. It's not even about what, what go, what's going on in your head. It's you, when you realize that somebody else has a, a beef with you. You got to go fix it. But so many of us, what do we want to do? We want to avoid conflict. Oh, I don't know if I can go talk to Joe the Butcher. He's big and mean and scary. Carries around an axe. Not, not an axe. Cleaver. Cleaver. <laughs> Is it cleaver? Yes. It's a cleaver? Meat cleaver, there it is, meat cleaver. It's carrying around a meat cleaver. I can't go talk to that guy. Have you ever been worshiping and somebody comes into your view, kind of you know, like you're like worshiping Jesus and there's Joe the Butcher. <laughs> Get out of here, I'm worshiping you, Jesus. I just wanna worship you, Joe the Butcher. Could it be that Jesus is putting Joe the Butcher in front of you and telling you to go fix whatever's wrong with him between you? Yes. And you know why? Because unity is supremely important. He says, leave your sacrifice to the altar, go and be reconciled, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Jesus is teaching us a new way to live, a new community that functions differently. They function on different ideas and and concepts. Our rituals are not nearly as as important as our relationships. Our rituals are not nearly as important. Do you know so many people get connected to their rituals? change the order of the service. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't know any of those songs tonight. Something with that. I came here to worship, not listen to some guy. We get attached to our rituals. It changed the style of music. I don't like that style. I'm going to go worship somewhere else. You ignore the relationships and get attached to the rituals. That's a problem. First, here's, what, here's what Paul said, all right? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, go over here to 1 Corinthians. Are you guys okay? Are you, are you hanging with me here? I got started a little late, but I'm going to finish out. 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 8. Chapter 8, this is a context. Paul is arguing the case about how to deal with weaker believers how how to to wrestle through the ideas. In verse nine, 1 Corinthians eight, verse nine, it says, but you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? It is not uncommon in Paul's day that you purchased meat from a location from a business that had already offered it to an idol. That they had consecrated it before an idol. They'd said a prayer over it. They'd done something that an, an anointed and give. And and some people were confused about that and and f- felt convicted because they didn't want to serve an idol. All right? And so there's there was competing ideas going on in that day well should christians eat meat that's consecrated to idols or is it okay or is it not okay and they kind of went around and around this thing and paul's trying to settle it and he says so because of your superior knowledge in verse 11 he says because of your superior knowledge notice he calls it superior knowledge here in the new living translation i, I like that phrase a weak believer for whom christ died will be destroyed so you're fine with eating meat. Actually, if you look at the context, the Apostle Paul says, "Look, God owns all the animals anyway." <laughs> and he's, "I'm already consecrated to God. I don't care. I can eat it. it tastes good." <laughs> but here he's saying, "Look, if you cause somebody else to stumble who has a weaker conscience, or or you could interpret it this way, they're tempted to turn their hearts back to the idols that they used to serve. Okay? That's how you could that's how you could identify what he's saying here. He's saying you're going to you're going to wound that believer for whom Christ died. They'll be destroyed. Verse 12. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. Wait a minute. I see where this is going. Look what he finishes up with. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Here's what he's saying. We are not only responsible for our own actions. <gasps> We're not only responsible for our own actions, but we are also responsible for the way our actions influence others. Why? Because we don't belong just to ourselves. It's not an individual relationship with Jesus Christ. You know the phrase, my personal Lord and Savior? You, is He personal? Yes. Did He save you? Yes. But that phrase, your personal Lord and Savior, it has the connotation of being your little Savior, your personal Lord. You're kind of like your personal butler. Christianity is a communal religion. It cannot be practiced as isolated spirituality. It cannot be. It doesn't exist that way. It didn't exist that way in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, or the New Testament. It is practiced in a community. That's the only way it can be practiced. And Paul is saying here, you've got to be concerned about others more than you're able to enjoy your own freedom. Because you belong to some other people. You have to think about what they're going through. Paul talks about it all through his uh, letters. He talks about it in Philippians, how we should not look on our own interests, but look on the interests of others. But why is this so important? What's the big deal? Okay, Pastor Ross, I get it. It's important. Why? Look at what Jesus said in Matthew. Turn over back to Matthew chapter 18. Going to go to Matthew 18 here, verse 15. Look at Matthew 18, 15. This, the context of this passage is Jesus talking about how people get along with one another, how they treat one another, and he gets to verse 15, and he says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. How are you supposed to go? Wait, wait one more time? You mean without anybody else? Before or after you've called three people and asked them to pray? Before. You go privately because you don't know what will happen. It might be a mistake. It might be a misunderstanding. It could be that they need the chance to repent before you go and tell everybody about their sin. He says here, if the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you were unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So what does he say here? He says, go with a friend. First you go by yourself, then you go with a friend. Why do you go with a friend? I phrase two or three witnesses. Can you guys put up that one, two, three, four, right? I'm kind of going through that. You go by yourself, you go quickly, you don't wait, you don't let it fester, you don't let it get in your soul, and then you go with a friend who is able to be helpful and loving. The the phrase, two or three witnesses, is an Old Testament term that talks about evidence. It's, It's you bring these people to make sure that you have the proper evidence and it's confirmed, that they're confirming this is indeed how it is. You bring two or three people, number one, to confirm for the person who sinned, that they really are missing it, or you have an opportunity for those two or three to evaluate what's really going on between the, in this relationship, and they may come to a different conclusion and correct you, that's the safety of the body of Christ, most people do not follow these directives, most people will not be willing to go to the person first by themselves. You know why? Because it takes courage. You've got to have courage to do it. They won't go with a friend to really deal with it. And then finally, Jesus says, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church, which means a place of authority, maybe your small group or an assembly of people that could speak into it. Uh, some kind of leadership then if he or she won't accept the church's decision treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector All Right? that seems kind of harsh treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector it seems harsh until you until you realize how jesus treated pagans and tax collectors <laughs> if indeed he didn't invite them to be his disciple <laughs> Pray for them and be a witness. That could be what, the way you're supposed to treat them. Now, it's at this moment that we should stop and ask the question, is there unity at all costs? No, not according to Jesus. There are moments when you have to disassociate. There are moments when you have to break relationship in some way. Sometimes it's unfortunate, but it must be done for the sake of the not, not, I don't think it's, I don't personally think it's about purity. I think it's about influence and who's influencing whom. If a person is sinful and they are leading more and more people to sin, And you go through and you try to correct that sinful behavior, but they insist on it and they keep doing it. Or it goes underground and it becomes more deceptive. And then they're pulling other people into that sin because they're connecting relationally. You've got to stop it. And so... It's not unity at all costs, but there is something here that Jesus is trying to teach us, and here it is in the next phrase, because verse 18 gives us the reason why unity and connectedness and oneness is so important. Here it is. I tell you the truth. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. What? What is that kind of power? Look at the next verse, 19. I also tell you this, if you two of you agree here on earth, concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. Really? That seems too good to be true. You know what I think? I think far too few people try it. And when I say try it, what I mean is, Loving people so deeply, so willingly, laying down your life in a community, being willing to protect relationships, being willing to help people who are in need, being willing to be a man or woman of peace in your community that protects unity and oneness, that you agree together to your core. Your hearts are merged together, melded together because you live in this community and you love them deeply. That kind of community, can ask? the father for anything Amen. then he says jesus says in verse 24 where two or three gather together as my followers i am there among them you've heard this verse quoted if you've been around church any more than two hours And you hear it, and you say, oh, we're two or three gathered. That's awesome. Jesus is there. No, that's not even what this verse is about. It's not about gathering for church. It's about the way your hearts are connected. It's about whether or not you live in a community where you're protecting oneness and being united for a purpose. And as you're united with other people, Jesus' presence dwells among you. The the presence of Jesus comes among a group of people that say, I'm going to protect the relationships in this community, and I'm going to make sure that I'm the type of person that's working for the health and the benefit of others. I'm the type of person that's going to lay down my life to give myself to others. Here's what I want you to see, is that heaven and earth are linked by our agreements, that when you and I decide in a community of love that we're going to do something together, heaven listens and actually joins us. The power of heaven comes alive on earth. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. If you pray that as a community, united in purpose, guess what's going to happen? The kingdom is coming. It's going to happen. Why? Because, Because you decided you're making decisions. Hey, think about, the, think about the opposite. In a community of strife, discord, in an, a, a community where people can't get along and don't trust one another and don't love each other, how easy is it for the kingdom of God to show up among them? It, what Jesus is clearly saying is, it's your choice. Heaven and earth can be moved if you'll agree together. Heaven and earth will work together if you'll be part of a community like this, if you'll protect it. Look, this is so important to us. It's foundational as one chapel because there's a mission that we have. And the mission benefits from our oneness. Last phrase I want you to see is there is a direct correlation between sharing the message of Christ with people who don't know him and the degree of unity, love, and peace within the community of Christ. How could there not be? Jesus is the one who prayed. Father, make them one, like you and I are one, so that the world will believe that you sent me. Those two things are directly related. Bow your heads, close your eyes. I want you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit who may want to speak into your life about the the challenge you face with relationships. Just close your eyes right where you are and let the Holy Spirit speak to you about people that you may need to make things right with. Would you listen as you ask the Holy Spirit to probe your heart? Ask Him if you're willing. Ask yourself if you're willing to lay your life down for other people and to live your life in relationship to others that you want to protect the unity of the people of God. might be here tonight and you're thinking to yourself, I I don't I don't really know what you're talking about, Pastor Ross, because I, I haven't experienced the kind of relationship with God that you're that you're speaking of. And I certainly haven't experienced the relationship of a community that loves me. Who comes into your mind as you think about this? What does God want you to do? What might he ask you to do? To protect the oneness of the people you belong to. It's not about being right or wrong. It's about relationships staying intact. I wonder if you'd just pray with me. As I lead you. Just under your breath, you just pray the same, these same ideas about what you're facing. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ who shows us the way to live. He laid down his life for me, and I, I want to follow. I want to lay down my life and pursue you and follow you. Lord, forgive me for refusing to lay down my life for others. Forgive me for refusing to believe the scripture that challenges me to be loving, kind, accepting, gentle. Forgive me for not acting in a way that honors your people, the community that I belong to. Father, Give me the strength, give me the courage to lay my life down for others. I choose you, and I choose your people. I choose your kingdom above all things, above my own individual interests, above my own pursuits, above my own freedom. I choose, I choose you, and I choose to belong. Lord, help every one of us To yield to the unity of the Spirit. Keeping the bonds of peace. Binding ourselves to one another with peace. So that the message will never be disqualified. Let the message be clear. That Jesus changes people. That Jesus empowers us to lay our lives down. We love you. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name.